Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Clive Cookson, Science Editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Antarctica is barely accessible to humans, but the ice-covered landmass and the oceans around it shelter rich wildlife, including many penguins. It also holds the keys for understanding the future of our planet, which is why scientific research into the isolated continent is stepping up. Our environment correspondent, Leslie Hook, is just back from the Antarctic, and she's with me in the studio to discuss what she learnt about some of the secrets of the South Pole. Leslie, where did you go and how did you get there? Well, Clive, I visited the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the bit that sort of sticks out of Antarctica and points towards Chile and Argentina. I was on board the Arctic Sunrise, a Greenpeace ship, and the Arctic Sunrise, along with another Greenpeace ship, the Esperanza, were supporting a bunch of research that was being done on the islands around the peninsula. In particular, they're supporting a group of penguin researchers who are there to count chinstrap penguins. And for people like me, who've never been there, unfortunately, tell us a bit what it's like. It was a bit surprising, in fact. I'd always dreamt of going to Antarctica, but it was a very hostile place. Unwelcoming is almost too weak a word. Most of Antarctica is ice, of course. It contains 90% of the world's ice and 70% of the world's fresh water. It's also technically a desert. There's only about 12 centimeters a year of precipitation in Antarctica. It's the windiest place in the world, with winds of up to 200 kilometers an hour. And it's about the size of Europe, a bit bigger than Europe, 14 million square kilometers. But in winter, of course, the ocean around Antarctica freezes, so the effective surface area nearly doubles in winter, and then the sea ice breaks up in summertime. So it's quite a strange place. It did feel a bit like being on a different planet. Others have talked about its beauty. You didn't say it was beautiful. Is that because you didn't find it so? That's a hard question. I think that there's a lot of beautiful places in the world. And it was very, uh, you know, there's ice and rock and more ice. And it kind of felt like a place that humans shouldn't be. Like, I kind of felt like maybe I shouldn't be here. Somehow, is it a violation of this continent, which has never had an indigenous human population to somehow be here myself. You were there with a group from Stony Brook University in New York who were studying chinstrap penguins on remote islands around the peninsula. So let's hear a clip from Noah Stryker, who's one of the Stony Brook grad students. He's talking about these penguins and why they're so important. If you can quantify how many penguins there are, then that probably helps you quantify how much krill there is in the system because they're food limited. And then that indicates, you know, these bigger shifts. So, so it's like an indicator. For... Yeah, you can call penguins a bio-indicator of the Southern Ocean ecosystem. And from what we were seeing now, the chinstrap declines are pretty widespread around here. Almost all the colonies we've seen have been declining in the past several decades anyway. So that kind of indicates that something is broken or changing at least in the ecosystem that's affecting penguins and probably affecting other things too. I like the three-way sound combination of human voices, penguin noises, and the blowing wind. (laughs) 
Anyway, Noah mentioned that the decline in these penguins could be linked to how much krill there is or isn't in the oceans. Tell us what krill is or are and how important it is as a food source for these penguins, fish and others. All of these animals are eating krill. Um, the whole food chain of the Southern Ocean really depends on the krill, so they are quite foundational. Krill are tiny little creatures, and they're actually quite hard to find. When I got on the ship, I said to all of these researchers, I really want to see a krill. And they said, oh, that's going to be a tough one. We don't have, you know, fishing nets or anything in the ocean. They said, you might not see a krill. But I did, in fact, when I was visiting one of the colonies, there were so many krill and, and the waves were kind of washing up on the beach and you could see these tiny little krill. They're about the size of, you know, your pinky nail or something. They were just washing up onto the rocks. Krill are so hard to find and they're very hard to count. And as a result, it's easier to count the penguins instead. You know, the penguins are on land. They come back to the same colonies every year. And so that's why researchers can track those penguin populations. And chinstraps in particular really only eat krill. So they're considered a little bit of an indicator for how the krill in that area are doing. And besides these chinstrap penguins, what other penguins live in Antarctica? And more broadly, what other wildlife did you encounter? There was so much wildlife. That was one of the big surprises, just the number of birds, the number of whales. There's been a huge resurgence in the humpback whale populations. And in fact, the growth in whale populations has also impacted the krill in ways that aren't fully understood. But one of the theories is that more whales eating more krill could mean there's less for the penguins to eat. So the ecosystem is shifting. And some of those shifts are good. I mean, it's great that whale populations are recovering after being hunted for centuries, but it is quite a transition. One interesting thing about the various penguin species that live on the Antarctic continent is that some of them are, in fact, doing well in an era of climate change, and some of them are doing very poorly. The emperor penguins are threatened and could be at risk of extinction because they can only breed on sea ice and a certain type of sea ice, whereas penguins that have more flexible habits, like the gentoo penguins, in fact, are seeing a real increase in their population figures. As our environment correspondent, you write a lot about the way global warming is affecting the rate at which polar sea ice is melting and how this will affect the global environment. So what did you learn about the role that Antarctica plays in global oceans and their circulation? Well, it turns out to play a really crucial role, which was something I hadn't really realized before. But the circumpolar Antarctic current is basically moving around Antarctica in a sort of clockwise direction. And it's the strongest ocean current in the world. And it's a key driver for the global ocean circulation, which is called the conveyor belt. You can think of, you know, the heart pumping blood around the system or um, the blades at the bottom of a blender. That churning around Antarctica is driving circulation through all of the oceans around the planet. And the global conveyor belt takes about 50 years to move water through all the oceans. And it's basically a combination of wind, temperature differences, differences in density that are circulating water, bringing fresh nutrients and oxygen and transporting heat as well around the planet. So it plays a really, really central role. One of the big questions about climate change right now is whether that conveyor belt phenomena is being impacted by a warming planet. We don't really know the answer yet. In your lovely 
FT magazine article, you mention something rather intriguing, Antarctic bottom water. How does that fit in with the global conveyor belt and the circumpolar current that you've been describing? Well, Antarctica is the biggest factory for bottom water on the planet. And what that means is that the coldest, densest water that sits at the bottom of the ocean, most of that comes from Antarctica. The ocean, of course, is a bit like a black and tan. It's stratified according to the density of the water. And Antarctic bottom water is formed by a couple of factors. One of the key ones is, you know, when ice freezes, it rejects the salt. Only water freezes. And so you get this sort of extremely salty liquid water while the ice is freezing. So it's rejecting all of that salt. And then that very cold, very salty water just sort of sinks down. And that's one of the things that helps drive this global overturning. How fascinating. You also wrote in the article about how Antarctica holds a key to the past history of the planet as well as to its future, because it wasn't always covered in ice, was it? No, it wasn't. And in fact, there are fossils from Antarctica of ferns and plants. I did not see any plants in Antarctica. I was told that there's technically two species of plant that have been seen there, but there's not basically, you know, virtually no plants. You certainly don't see any of them. But about 5 million to 3 million years ago, the world was much warmer, uh, about 2 to 3 degrees Celsius warmer than it is now. Sea levels were also much higher, about 25 meters higher than they are now. And Antarctica still had some ice, we think, on it, but also a lot of bare rock and plants and As CO2 levels in the atmosphere continue to rise, our planet in the future could resemble one of those past atmospheres with a higher sea level and warmer temperatures. I know that a lot more people are visiting Antarctica as tourists rather than scientists. Did your trip tell you anything about the way the continent and its islands are responding to the influx of tourists and how that needs to be managed? I did see a couple of big cruise vessels while I was down there. And there's a lot more ice-capable cruise ships under construction. So there's just been a real explosion in tourism numbers. This season, this season being kind of November 2019 through March 2020, there's about a 40% increase in tourists just from the previous year. I think that when it comes to the governance of Antarctica, it's not only tourism that's a challenge. There's also fishing and there's also resources there. There could be oil or coal under the sea. And the combination of tourism, fishing and a region that's becoming more accessible as the ice retreats basically just means that there's a lot more pressure on the area. So geopolitically, how do you think it should be managed in future? Ooh, that's a big question. Well, it is managed by the Antarctic Treaty System, which is in place and will be in place for a long time. And the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1959 by all the countries that lay claim to Antarctica, essentially, it was a bit of a truce. They said, look, we'll dedicate this continent to peace and science. No one will do any military exercises on it. No country will assert or expand its claim. So everyone agreed to just get along. And that's more or less worked out pretty well over the last 60 years, but it's becoming harder and harder perhaps to have really hard and fast rules, like should there be a firm cap on the number of tourists that visit Antarctica each year? That's one of the really hot questions right now. And 
the Antarctic Treaty doesn't really have enough teeth to implement that type of really strict rule. So there's some questions that are arising about whether the Antarctic Treaty is fit for purpose. For now, it's still sort of more or less working. I'd like to end by going back to your own personal impressions. What was the strongest feeling you have in retrospect about the trip? I think my strongest takeaway is that Antarctica is a continent that never had an indigenous human population, and perhaps it ought to stay that way. It felt like a place where the human presence is a real imposition. First of all, because you can't really survive there unless you're inside some sort of highly insulated building or insulated boat or inside a, you know, a boat suit. So it's the closest I will probably ever experience in my life to being on the moon or on Mars. And having been there, which was a real privilege, I can't say I'm eager to go back. Thank you, Leslie. And we'll play out with some of the non-human sounds from the penguins that you recorded on the trip. We'll put a link to Leslie's magazine article in our show notes. And remember, if you missed our recent episodes on the Gulf oil money flowing into sport, Iran's flawed elections or Donald Trump's interference in the U.S. judicial system, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.